Well, I missed you all. It's good to be back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for your word. We pray now that you would speak to our hearts through your word, reveal to us the glory of your Son, and that we might love him more and praise him rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Our passage this morning is going to be from uh, Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. And so, let's start by just reading the text. Then we'll talk about what's going on in this narrative and how we can apply it to our lives. So, Luke 9... 37 to 45, this is the word that God has for you this morning. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So that we can keep track of where we are in this story, let's go through it using a four-point outline. We are sponsored this morning by the letter C, and so our points are the context, the chaos, the cure, and the concealment. Uh, The context, the chaos, the cure, and the concealment. Let's begin with point number one, the context. Uh, Hopefully you know that context is always, always important when you study any passage of the Bible, right? We never want to isolate a story from its larger context. But that is especially true here. Now look at how Luke starts off the narrative by specifically tying it to its context. Look at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, and so reading that should draw your eyes immediately to the preceding section, uh, the passage on the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, uh, the inner circle of his disciples, if you will, uh, leaving the other nine at the bottom of the mountain, right, keep that in mind, in order to go up on the mountain, and it's while they're up there that Jesus is transfigured into this uh, glorious, radiant appearance. 
And Moses and Elijah make a cameo here, and they speak with Jesus about his departure. Remember that word is exodus. They're speaking to him about his exodus, the deliverance that he's about to accomplish through his death and his resurrection. And then Peter's just loving every moment of this. So he blurts out, let us make three tents. Basically, let us stay here forever. Not realizing what he's saying. But then God the Father speaks from the cloud, reminding the disciples what this whole thing is about. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This isn't about Moses and Jesus and Elijah, all three of them. No, this is about Jesus. This is about the work that Jesus is about to accomplish. And all of that, we said last time, that was to serve as a a sneak preview a guarantee to the disciples of the glory of the kingdom. That even though Jesus has been talking about his sufferings and his death, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Like even though such inglorious things are about to take place, well, all that is on the road to glory. And so the transfiguration The immediate context of our story for today, like what just happened, the transfiguration is one of the most glory-filled scenes in the entire Bible. You'll remember how Peter described it in 2 Peter chapter 1. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But on the very next day, as Jesus Peter, James, and John are coming down from that mountain, from that glorious scene. Look again at verse 37. A great crowd met him. And that great crowd, as we're going to see in the next set of verses, that great crowd is marked by just all sorts of spiritual darkness and sin and fallenness, demon possession, the disciples' failure, unbelief, faithlessness, quarreling. Like, what a contrast. You can imagine just the the three disciples thinking to themselves, how did we go from hanging out with Moses and Elijah with a transfigured Jesus in all of his glory? That was so awesome. How did we go from that to this? Point number one, the context. If you know art history. Well, I am not one of you. Uh, I'm not even going to be pretending to be one of you. Like, full disclosure, everything that I'm about to say is on Wikipedia. But apparently, the most famous painting of the 16th century was a painting called The Transfiguration. It was painted by the Italian Renaissance master Raphael And in my research, uh, I could not figure out whether he painted it before or after he became a Ninja Turtle. (laughs) I mean, what are the odds that all of these great men of the Renaissance would be named after the Ninja Turtles? I don't know. But let me just describe this painting for you. Uh, And I encourage you to take a look at it later. Don't Google it now. The top half of the painting uh, is showing the transfiguration narrative that we covered last time. Uh, th- this bright, glorious scene, uh, colors just jumping off the painting as Jesus is displayed in his splendor. 
the bottom half of the same painting shows this scene from the next day with the demon-possessed boy and the surrounding crowds, and it's much, much darker than the top half of the painting. And so Raphael, right, through his painting on the canvas, he's portraying the same contrast that Luke presents to us through ink on his parchment. This contrast between the glorious mountain above and then the darkness of the scene below. There's an even more significant reference than some Ninja Turtle art that we ought to take notice of here. Just think about it. They are descending from the mountain after this glorious time of being in God's presence, hearing God's voice, receiving God's revelation, and they come down to all of this spiritual darkness and disaster. Does that remind you of anything? Remember who was just with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking to Jesus about his exodus? Moses. And so you'll remember how when Moses descended from the mountain after his glorious time of being in God's presence, hearing God's voice, receiving God's revelation, when he received the law on Mount Sinai, well, what does he come down to? He comes down to the paradigm of spiritual darkness and disaster, like the archetype of rebellion and unbelief and faithlessness among God's people in the Old Testament. And of course, I'm referring to the incident of the golden calf. Again, what a contrast. Friends, there is a a lesson there for, for all of us from both Testaments, from Moses and Jesus, from Mount Sinai to the golden calf, and from the Mount of Transfiguration to our narrative. Now, none of us are ever going to receive God's law on Mount Sinai. None of us are ever going to be up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it is a reminder to us that here on this earth, regardless of how wonderfully things seem to be going, that we're just not in the glories of heaven yet. Yes, God is gracious to grant to us mountaintop experiences and moments in this life. But just like Peter learned last time, you can't build tents and stay there forever. That's not to be fatalists or pessimists or spiritual eors or anything like that. Just can't have nice things. No, it's to be realistic about the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world with much suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it's to be realistic that the Christian life is not just going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience, but much of it is lived in between in the valleys. I'm sure many of you know this from personal experience. Like you can be having the best Sunday of your life, like worshiping with the people of God, fellowshipping all day with the saints, just encouraged, seemingly beyond your capacity to be encouraged. But that doesn't necessarily spare you from a Monday morning full of screaming bosses and difficult trials and hostile persecution. That's just part of the Christian life. And the quicker and better you learn that, the better equipped you will be. 
God doesn't just transport us into heaven at conversion so that the fullness of our eternal glory begins the moment we get saved. No, he leaves us here to minister and to love and to be his ambassadors in this broken and sin-cursed world with all of its sin and misery and brokenness and demonic influence. But, with all that said about life in this world, walking through valleys and trials and difficulties, right? Here's the, the one truth that perhaps saves us from falling into a fatalistic, hopeless mindset. It's that our God has promised us that it's as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death that he is with us, that his rod and his staff comfort us. Even in this story, and Peter, James, John, you're not walking down this mountain by yourselves to face all of this spiritual darkness on your own. No, Jesus is right there with you. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is leading you. And as we're about to see, Jesus is going to display his majestic glory here in the valley, just like he did up on that mountain. And so likewise, brothers and sisters, We need to remember that our God is no less with us and no less majestically glorious in the darkest of valleys that he allows us to walk through as he is in the most glorious of mountaintops that he allows us to experience. That's what it means when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Point number one, the context. Which leads us then to point number two, the chaos. Jesus, Peter, James, John, they come down that glorious mountain to just a scene of absolute chaos. And this chaos is manifesting itself on a bunch of different levels here. First, you've got this demon-possessed boy. Let's think about him. We've talked a lot about demon possession in our studies in Luke, and I'm not going to get into all the details again, but... You might remember when we talked about the the garrison demoniac in Luke chapter 8. I said that that was the worst case of demon possession in the Gospels. I still think that's true. Uh, And so this might not be as bad as that. But this is still a pretty bad case. And we know how bad it is because the Gospel writers, they go out of their way to paint this as an altogether tragic situation. And the spirit, verse 39, it seizes the poor boy. It controls him. It possesses him. It leads him to frequently convulse like epileptic seizures. It shatters him. And this is not just like a temporary thing. We're told that it hardly leaves him. Mark adds some helpful details for us in his account. He tells us that the demon makes the boy mute. He's unable to speak. It throws him down. It casts him into fire and water in an attempt to destroy him. So it's making him like involuntarily jump into bonfires or water wells or lakes or whatever it might be. This boy's life is a living nightmare of demon possession. You can imagine just how difficult all of that would have been for his father witnessing 
the life of his son, his only son, as Luke likes to point out, the life of his son just in complete shambles. Mark adds the detail that he's been like this from childhood. And so from the time that his dear son was just a little boy, this father's had to watch his beloved being daily tormented by this demon. And perhaps worst of all, there's absolutely nothing that he can do about it except maybe to save him from destroying himself. Like pulling him out of the fire, hauling him out of the well, stopping him surely dozens of times as he's on the verge of destroying himself. This poor boy and this poor father, uh, their entire life together up to this point has been one of absolute torment because of this demon. Wait a minute. There's hope, isn't there? Because the man gets word that Jesus and his disciples are in the area. Let's just paint the scene in your head here. The father brings his son. They're looking for Jesus, hoping that something could be done for him. But Jesus isn't there. He's on the top of the mountain. But hey, here's nine of his apostles. Nine men who, remember earlier in the chapter, they just came back from a campaign throughout Galilee in which they drove out every single demon that they encountered. Look back real quick at Luke 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so they, as the specially commissioned group of men that we call the apostles, they were given power and authority over, look carefully at the text, all demons. All demons means all demons. Including, in theory, this one. So this is going to be light work for you guys, right? This is, this is a piece of cake for you to cure my son, right? But they just can't seem to do it. Andrew tries, and he fails. Philip, nothing doing. Thomas, no go. Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus. How about you, Thaddeus? Simon the Zealot, Bartholomew, no. Even Judas gives it a try. Nothing. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Because you've got to help. I know you can help. Why can't you help? These disciples are, in essence, no different than the doctors who couldn't help the bleeding woman just the chapter before. And so the father, he is on the verge of utter despair at this point. Thinking, my son, my son is a hopeless cause. Now add to all of that, Mark tells us that the failure of the disciples leads to an argument between the disciples and the scribes. You remember the scribes, the representatives of the Jewish religious elite who just, they hate Jesus, they just want to trap him, they just want to discredit him throughout this gospel. And so these scribes are now picking a fight with the disciples, and you can imagine that they are watching the disciples fail with glee. They're rubbing it in at every opportunity, making this big scene in front of the crowds. 
You guys have no power. You can't drive this. De- this I, we told you that they're all frauds. And Jesus, he's a fraud too. Just like we told you. You can imagine the scribes having the best day of their life. So put it all together here. Just picture the chaos of this scene. You've got this uncontrollable, demon-possessed boy. He's rolling around on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. You've got incompetent disciples who, who they're at a loss for why they can't drive out the demon. You've got this father. He is desperate. He's on the verge of utter despair. He's distraught that the disciples who've cured pretty much everybody else just can't cure his son. And you've got these hard-hearted scribes who are rejoicing we're doing this victory dance because this boy's misery can't be cured. Mocking the the failure that they're witnessing. And you've got this massive crowd watching everything unfold and surely everybody's giving their opinion as to what's happening. This scene is just absolute chaos. Point number two, the chaos. It's to this chaotic scene that Jesus and his disciples come down from the mountain. And as Jesus looks out and he sees the disciples lacking faith, unable to cure this boy, he sees the scribes completely opposed to him, trying to discredit him, he sees the crowds wowed by miracles but refusing to submit to his lordship, and he rebukes them all. Verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Faithless and twisted generation. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, which everybody hearing the rebuke that day would have been, well, you'll know there's another generation, another group of people referred to by that exact same term. And it's a group of people that we've already considered in this sermon I'm referring, of course, to the Exodus generation. The same generation that Moses came down from Mount Sinai to witness worshiping that golden calf. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Referring to this Exodus generation, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You know things are bad when you're being compared to that generation. Point number two, the chaos. Which brings us to point number three, the cure. So the scene is totally chaotic. Everything seems just hopeless and helpless. There's demonic activity, there's inability, there's unbelief, there's faithlessness, like everywhere. But in the midst of all that, The Father, the Father still holds out hope that Jesus can do something. And so he runs to Jesus, he begs him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. And then Jesus says four words that must have been just music to the Father's ears. Bring your son here. Because when Jesus says, bring your son here, it doesn't mean, hey, all right, let's take a look, see what we can do. 
We've been in this gospel long enough to know that when Jesus says, bring your son here, it means I'm going to heal him. I'm going to surely cast this demon out. The demons certainly seem to understand that, knowing that its doom is sure, but in a last-ditch effort to harm this poor boy, he, he's thrown down on the ground and convulsed again by the demon. But all that's to no avail because, just like that, look at the text, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Just like he rebuked the winds and the waves, just like he spoke Jairus' daughter back to life, simply by the power and authority of his word, well, Jesus casts it out. The demon that had tormented this poor boy from childhood, the demon that caused so much harm to him, the demon that had tormented him in so many ways, just like that, it's gone for good. Mark gives us some more details here. I'm going to flip over to Mark chapter 9. I'll read verses 23 to 27 so that we can kind of fill in some of the gaps. So the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Picking up in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And so while Luke seems to especially highlight the authority of Jesus' word, Mark seems to focus more on the topic of faith. But you see, both present the healing, the exorcism, as immediate and complete. Look at how Jesus commands a demon, Mark 9.25, to never enter him again. Like when Jesus casts out a demon, it's not coming back with seven of its friends so that the last eight is worse than the first. It's gone for good. And turning back to Luke, let's not forget that little phrase there at the end of verse 42. And we've seen that language before, haven't we? Jesus gave him back to his father. You remember that Luke uses the same exact phrase with the widow at Nain's son. Back in chapter 7, Jesus gave him to his mother. Gave him to his mother. Well, that's Luke's way of emphasizing that it's not just the son who is healed. In many ways, his father was as well. His years of torment, helplessly watching as his son is just being destroyed by this demon before his eyes, well, those hard years are now over. Just put yourself in this man's shoes. You can only imagine the joy that he was experiencing because it's not just the restored prodigals who rejoice. It's also the fathers who get them back. This my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost, but now is found. Point number three, the cure. Well, that leads us now to point number four, the concealing. Look at verse 43. All were astonished at the majesty of God. Like, like astonished. They're just blown away by what they just witnessed. 
Jesus displaying complete authority and power over this demon. And so just like he displayed his majesty so clearly on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll hear all were astonished at the majesty of God because of what they just saw. But the thought doesn't stop there. It continues right on. And so the, the ESV section break here is not super helpful because it comes right in the middle of a thought. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. And so you see that intentional juxtaposition there by Luke. It's while all this excitement and hype is around him. It's while the crowds are abuzz and astonished and marveling at what he just did that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and refocuses them on the task at hand. While everybody else is talking about the miracle, well, Jesus is talking about the same thing that he's always been talking about. Let these words sink into your ears. He's emphasizing the importance. Like, don't miss this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Once again, we the reader are reminded that Jesus' earthly ministry is not primarily about miracles and healings and exorcisms like the one that he just performed. Even though those are the kinds of things that draw the unbelieving and faithless crowds. No, his mission, Luke 19.10, is to seek and to save the lost. And the way he's going to accomplish that mission is to be delivered into the hands of men. But even as Jesus is emphasizing this to his disciples in plain language, they just don't get it. Look at verse 45. They did not understand this saying. Not in the sense that they couldn't comprehend the words that are coming out of his mouth, like... He's speaking to them in Japanese or something like that. No, they did not understand this saying in the sense that they didn't get how it could be that this glorious Messiah, that some of them just saw transfigured on the mountain, that all of them just saw triumphantly cast out this demon from this boy, the one who's repeatedly shown his power and authority over all things. Like, how could it be that that Messiah is going to be delivered into the hands of men. How can it be that that Messiah is going to be killed, is going to be crucified, is going to be rejected? Matthew adds that the disciples, upon hearing Jesus say this, they were greatly distressed. Can't really be greatly distressed if you have no idea what someone's saying. No, they knew what he was saying. They just didn't understand how such things could be. Why not? Well, Luke tells us it was concealed from them. Point number four, the concealing. Friends, the Bible is clear that spiritual understanding, spiritual knowledge, all of it comes from God. He hides it from whom he wills. And he reveals it to whom he wills. And in this case, it pleased him to conceal these truths from the disciples. 
But at the same time, Luke points out that even with the sovereignty of God in his revelation, well, the disciples are responsible too. Because they could have asked Jesus questions. They could have pursued this further if they really wanted to know. But verse 45, they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so with both God's sovereign concealing and the disciples' spiritual darkness just simultaneously at work, well, they, they just don't get it. Now, perhaps some of you in this room, perhaps you're in a, a similar situation. You've been coming to church. You've been listening to sermons. So you know the basic facts of the gospel. That Jesus died for sinners like you and me. That he rose again. That in his death he took upon all the sins of his people. And in exchange gave them his perfect righteous record. That they might be fit for heaven. Like you understand the facts of the gospel. But you don't understand the gospel. That is it hasn't produced in you a true faith in Jesus and his work. Well, if that's you, I say to you again that you must repent and believe that gospel and be saved. I say to you that the wrath of God is still upon you. You're headed to hell because of your sin. Your only hope is that you would cry out to the Lord to save you. May God open your eyes to that truth today so that what was previously concealed might then be revealed through his sovereign will where the gospel that you've heard maybe dozens and dozens of times but has fallen on deaf ears, it finally clicks and God grants you that faith and repentance that you might be saved. Point number four, the concealing. So that's our story the story of this demon-possessed boy at the foot of the Mount of the Transfiguration. You can tell the chaos, sorry, the context, the chaos, the cure, and the concealing. But how then should we live? In light of this story, what does that have to do with us? Well, let me leave you with two takeaways before we finish. Takeaway number one, application point number one. Uh, in our successes... Beware. In our successes, beware. Let's think a little more about the disciples' failure to cast out this demon. Why their failure leads to such a strong rebuke from Jesus. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Well, if you read only the Gospel of Luke, it's not entirely clear to us, but this is where the other synoptics are really helpful in terms of filling in some of the details. Look at what it says in Mark's account, Mark 9, verses 28 and 29. This is after this same incident here. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What does that imply? That implies that they were not praying. And in Matthew's account, Matthew highlights their lack of faith. 
Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. So put everything that Jesus said there together. The reason the disciples could not cast this demon out wasn't because this is some kind of invincible, indestructible demon or anything like that. It's because they lacked faith. And their lack of faith expressed itself in a lack of prayer. Let's try to take this one step further. Why would they not pray? Why would they not rely on the Lord to help them? Bit of conjecture, because the text doesn't say, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch. It's probably because, well, they'd already had plenty of success in casting out demons. Remember the beginning of the chapter? They go on this short-term mission trip around Galilee. They're casting out demons everywhere they go with the power and the authority that Jesus gives to them. Then they never met a demon they couldn't cast out. And so here's another demon-possessed person. We got this. Don't don't worry, we've done this a million times before. So pride kicks in, and presumption kicks in, complacency kicks in. They go on autopilot. And they're completely shocked when they can't do what they've always done. But as humiliated as they must have felt in that moment, like as embarrassed as they must have felt before the watching crowds on that day, that was a kind gift from God to allow them to fail. Because much, much more important than their exorcism success rate is that they would see the importance of faith and prayer. That they would see the importance of a true dependence on the Lord and not on their own abilities or past success. Friends, we ought to learn the lesson of the dangers of past success. A past success, of course, is a, a wonderful gift from God, like we would prefer it to failure. But to the extent that past success makes us forget our dependence on the Lord, well, it can be a terribly dangerous thing. Uh, We need to remember that regardless of how many times we've done something for the Lord, regardless of how others might praise us for how we've done something in the past, regardless of how successful we've been, apart from Him, we can do nothing. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't matter how often and in what ways the Lord has worked through you in the past. The truth holds true for the very next time that you're going to do anything in his name. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. We are just as dependent on him for success the hundredth time as we were the first. So we need to beware of how past success can breed self-dependence. What's the number one symptom of such self-dependence? What's exactly what Jesus draws our attention to here? 
in Mark's account, it's prayerlessness. Let me put it another way. Look for prayerlessness in your life. Like, what are the things in your life that you just don't pray for? And you'll likely be able to connect it to those areas of your life that you're a lot more dependent on yourself, your experience, your expertise, your past success, than you are on the Lord. The disciples learned that the hard way here, but it's a lesson they had to learn. And it's a lesson that we all ought to learn as well. Application point number one in our successes, beware. Application point number two, takeaway number two here, in our failures, see the grace of God. In our failures, see the grace of God. Uh, This is a story about a glorious exorcism of a demon-possessed boy. It's a story about a boy who had lived this miserable, tragic existence because of this tormenting spirit, and a father who had lived a miserable, tragic existence because of everything that was happening to his son, and how Jesus miraculously restores them. But you see, none of that would have been necessary if it wasn't for the disciples' failure. You think about it. While Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on that mountain still, if the other nine apostles who remained, if they had just prayed and truly relied on the Lord and not their own strength, like none of this narrative would have been necessary. They would have driven out the demon, even as they had driven out many other demons by the power and authority that Christ gave them on their earlier trip through Galilee. Which means that the scribes and the disciples will... They wouldn't be arguing because there's nothing to argue about. The scribes would have to take the L and just go home. And Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they would have come down from that mountain. They would have seen a much more tranquil scene, a much more peaceful scene than the absolute chaos that they come to. So this isn't just a story of Jesus' mighty works, though it is that. It's also a story of the disciples' failure. And that, by the way, sets us up for the rest of Luke chapter 9. If you kind of skim through the rest of the chapter, we're going to unfold these verses over the next few weeks. But the disciples are repeatedly going to show that even the best of men are men at best. But don't miss this. In the disciples' failure, in their faithlessness, in their prayerlessness, in their inability, do you see the grace of our Lord? Look again at the rebuke that Jesus issues in verse 41. In response to the disciples' failure. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus expresses there just this holy exasperation. He's just seeing the unbelief and faithlessness not only among the multitudes, but even among his closest disciples. I mean, you or I, or maybe I should just speak for myself, I honestly would have probably given up on them. If not after this failure, certainly by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, the disciples repeatedly show a lack of understanding of just kingdom basics. Oh, but our God is a patient, long-suffering God who bears with his people in their failure. 
I mean, just think about what he does in response to all that unbelief and faithlessness. At first, he miraculously cures the boy. He cleans up the mess that his disciples left. He completes the task that they could not. He casts out the demon. Then, instead of basking on the glory of the crowds, he reminds the disciples of why he came. To die for sinners like them. The sinners who fail over and over and over. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And ultimately, ultimately, of course, he would go to the cross to pay for the sins of all of God's people. Sins like the faithlessness and the prayerlessness and the self-dependence that they just exhibited. Sins like the faithlessness and the prayerlessness and the self-dependence that you and I exhibit on a regular basis. And not just those sins, but all of the sins and failures and shortcomings of which we are guilty. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? That's a rhetorical question, but not one without an answer. The answer to that question is that he would bear with his people long enough to go to the cross of Calvary, where he would die for their sins. And so even in this rebuke, he's pointing his disciples to the grace they would receive through his finished work. Friends, brothers and sisters, we all know what it is like to fail in our spiritual walks. To sin against the Lord. Or to not do the good that we set out to do. To exhibit faithlessness and prayerlessness in our day-to-day lives. Like we all know what that's like. When you find yourself failing like that, when you find yourself failing like the disciples do here, yes, you should repent. Yes, you should turn from your sin. Yes, you should try to change how you live for the glory of God. Friends, most of all, in your failure, you need to see the grace of God. You need to see a long-suffering God who bears with us in our failures. A restoring God who, in spite of our failures, calls us back to himself. A gracious God who, in Christ, forgives you for making that same mistake again and again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so, brothers and sisters, application point number two, in our failures, we need to see Rejoice in and savor the grace of God. Luke chapter 9, healing of the demon-possessed boy at the bottom of the mountain. Yet another glorious story about our glorious Savior. What ought we to take away from that? Well, many things, but here are two. In our successes, we ought to be aware, aware and beware the dangers of self-dependence. And truly, apart from him, we can do nothing. And in our failures, friends, we ought to be quick to see and identify and rejoice in 
the grace of our God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus, for the one who, in spite of our failures, in spite of our continuing failures, has died for our sins, that we might be made your children. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in that resolve and in that faith to trust in the gospel. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. Pray that today would be the day that you would reveal to them what has been to this point concealed, and the glory of your Son in his death and his resurrection on behalf of sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.